This is the Saucer Life, exploring the history and lore of flying saucers. I'm Aaron Gulgas. The Saucer Life is a podcast in which we explore concepts, events, or people from the world of flying saucers. No preconceptions, no snark, no disbelief, no debunking, no more sequels. This is Encounter 204, The Zine Scene, 1954, Part 2. Welcome back. We're finishing 1954 this week as the various bits of the American saucer mythology slowly take shape. Mosley rounds out the first issue of Nexus with a tease of future inside information that becomes something of a running gag over the next few issues, while also very consciously riffing on the Bender story. Well, that about winds up issue number one. We'll be back again in another 30 days or so with more news and views, including a very important announcement. The July issue of the APRO Bulletin led off with a story about a bizarre creature sighting in Ontario. And the story's notable uh, mostly for the cover-up aspects that Coral Lawrenson perceives as part of this entire account. Ennio Lasarza, a Garson mine employee, claims he saw three men about 13 feet tall with strange hypnotic eyes descend from a spaceship on July 2nd. Reports of his experience were received at police headquarters, and although this incident has not been thoroughly investigated, it is believed that the incident took place in the daytime. Many exaggerated stories flew in the area, many women complaining that since the incident they are afraid to go out at night. Probably the most interesting of all official statements is the following by Squadron Leader King of the Royal Canadian Air Force radio station when he said that he conducted an investigation into the report and, quote, actually found it to be fictitious. It just didn't corroborate with anything of what it should be, end quote. When asked what it should be, King commented that that is classified information. This last is further evidence that the authorities know the nature of the occupants of the saucers. Many may conjecture that the Garson landing was some sort of man-made robot ship manned by robots and connected with man's attempt at space travel, but that is not very well borne out in the face of the evidence. If this thing were actually a test ship on a test landing, it is doubtful that it would be landed in a populated area where it might be seen. Of course, this was all undermined by a last-minute news flash in which cooler heads prevailed and the story is mostly debunked in follow-up reports. The other item of note in this July issue is Lawrenson getting in another dig at Al Bender. Rumor that Al Bender, former president of International Flying Saucer Bureau, which, he claims, was forced to shut down by very mysterious men under very mysterious circumstances, will write a book and tell all. If he does have anything to tell, he won't. But then if he doesn't, he can't have anything to tell, that is. What I'm getting from this rumor is the, the very sweetly naive, naive view that if Bender has nothing to say, then he wouldn't write a book. You can tell that it were, were at the relative dawn of the saucer age from the lack of cynicism on display. As we possibly have learned over the past 60 years, not having any actual information has never been an impediment to writing a flying saucer book. In fact, not having any actual information is the perfect way to go into writing a flying saucer book because nobody can refute you. You have nothing to go on anyway. It's all speculation. You can do whatever you want, much like Bender did with the people from Kayak, probably. August. 
In the August issue of Nexus, Mosley reports on the Garson, Ontario sighting of 13-foot-tall saucer beings, but doesn't include the debunking follow-up. My first instinct is that the original sighting made a better story than a debunking, and that's why Mosley went with it. But um, on further reflection, I have a feeling that Mosley was probably reporting all he knew of the sighting at that time. The portion of the story about the debunking came to Lorenzen from an APRO member. If Mosley had not yet seen the July issue of the APRO Bulletin, he might not have heard that part of the story. Given 1950s postal delivery times and production time for a magazine like Nexus, I have a feeling that might be the case. In somewhat more interesting news, via Gray Barker, Mosley gives us the latest on George Adamski. The following is courtesy of Gray Barker. George Adamski is back from a trip to Venus in a flying saucer, according to Monroe Johnston, who interviewed the Planet Hopper for the Toronto Daily Star. Adamski was in Toronto in May for a lecture. The saucer trip was quite uneventful, and he had no illusions of speed as he coasted through space at unbelievable velocity. Since there was an artificial atmosphere inside the saucer, similar to that of Earth, he was able to carry on conversations with the Venusian crew in comparative comfort. Since his first contact with the telepathic saucer men, Adamski has contacted the space people seven more times, and on the occasion outlined above, he was invited to come aboard a small saucer which carried him to a large mothership. It landed on the back of the mothership and was carried into the interior through a trap door and down rails. Although the saucer people wore a kind of aerial ski suit while flying, the women liked to slip on evening dresses when they got in a lounging mood. The main purpose of their visits to Earth is to warn Earthians about polluting the atmosphere by exploding atomic weapons. This is an interesting time in Adamski's career. Where between his initial encounter, as described in the final portion of Flying Saucers of Landed, and he's on tour telling the stories that will make up the bulk of Inside the Spaceships, which will be published the following year. Despite getting the news from Barker about Adamski's travels, Mosley does take some time to engage in some good-natured feuding about the lateness of the next issue of the Saucerian. What has happened to Gray Barker's Saucerian? The last issue, dated February, announced they were going quarterly instead of bi-monthly as before. That would mean that the next issue should have been out in May, or June at the very latest. But here it is, nearly the 1st of August as of this writing, and still no Saucerian. Can this be another hush-up, we wonder? The letters to the editor section has some interesting touches, including a letter from Albert Bender. May I thank you for sending on to me a copy of Nexus. It was enjoyable reading. I am sure that with two capable men such as Mr. Roberts and Mr. Lucchese, your organization will be a huge success. May I wish you every type of success with your group, and I would appreciate hearing from you again. Albert K. Bender, Bridgeport, Connecticut. And a letter... Um, wanting uh, wanting Nexus to investigate Bender, and also takes a little time out to complain about the Saucerian. I really enjoyed your first issue. It is by far the best in its field and certainly far superior to the Saucerian, which is only a cheap imitation of Nexus, in my opinion. Why don't you do an article about Al Bender? I understand that your assistant, August Roberts, has a lot of information on him. Our group here is anxious to know the truth about Bender, and we feel that you should tell us the facts on this subject as soon as possible. A lot of people would be interested. Fred Broman, Washington, D.C. Finally, continuing the gag from the first issue, Mosley has an update on that important announcement. 
The very important announcement promised in the July issue has been postponed until further notice. September. Every issue of Nexus has been dedicated to a different flying saucer investigation club, and the September issue is no exception. Issue 3 is dedicated to the Pentagon, with the dedication helpfully typed within a Pentagon shape. In his lead story, Mosley goes sort of into contact e-mode with a, I think, tongue-in-cheek report on a seance which reached out to an extraterrestrial. Well, we thought, till recently, that it was necessary to go out west to find people making personal contacts with spacemen. But lo and behold, it wasn't more than two or three weeks ago that we sat in an apartment right in Greenwich Village and witnessed one of the strangest phenomena this side of the Rockies. Gathered around a Ouija board was a half dozen or so of the faithful, trying hard to stay in contact with a character from outer space named SY9. Right in the middle of things, SY9 informed us that he had to take a break in order to fight off an attack of saucers from the planet of the Tenth Orbit. In case you're not up on your astronomy, the planet of the Tenth Orbit hasn't been discovered yet. There are only nine known planets in our solar system so far. A fellow named Rom filled in during SY9's absence. A little later, SY9 returned and informed us that his squadron had successfully beaten off the attack. He went on to tell us a few other interesting things. War between Russia and the United States will begin on February 9, 1955, and in August of 1955, seven of our cities will be bombed simultaneously by Russian H-bombs. These cities are Washington, Boston, San Diego, watch out, Mead Lane, San Francisco, Detroit, Philadelphia, and Tacoma. You will note that New York City is not on the list. However, subscribers living in the above-mentioned seven cities should take due warning, and if by chance this prediction comes true, remember that you read it in Nexus. Our predictions are 99 and 44 one-hundredths percent accurate. But getting back to the Ouija board. Your skeptical editor wanted to test the mental powers of SY9 by asking something that no one else in the room but himself could know, namely his own middle name. The answer came out in Martian. On the other hand, a question pertaining to a woman not present and identified to SY9 only by her first name, out of 8 million New Yorkers, was answered immediately, though in this case the correct answer easily could have been guessed at by anyone present. Your editor's opinion on all this, that he witnessed a very interesting and amusing demonstration of how the subconscious mind can cause messages to spell themselves out on a Ouija board, and that even should the messages really be from space, they are unimportant in that they do not constitute proof acceptable to rational people. In the hard news department, there's big information from the mutual broadcasting system. Flash. Frank Edwards, mutual newscaster, has been fired by his sponsor, the American Federation of Labor. The sudden action came totally unexpectedly both to Edwards and to his vast radio following. One of the two main reasons for his firing is reported to be his continual emphasis on flying saucers and, in particular, a recent request he made for his audience to send him letters as to whether they wanted him to continue to give saucer sightings on his program. The resulting flood of mail was very pro-saucer by a ratio of 100 to 1, but annoyed the AFL greatly. Gray Barker responds to the slanderous talk about his beloved Saucerian magazine. 
Being in the saucer publishing business myself, I was greatly interested in reading the first two issues of Nexus, and found that the second issue showed a considerable improvement. As to your comment on what happened to Gray Barker's Saucerian, I think you are quite ill-advised, and you can read all about the hush-up in the current issue of the Saucerian, which will be out in a few days. The dirty crack that Fred Broman of Washington, D.C. made about the Saucerian was also ill-advised, as he will determine the first time I see him. You can tell him, Mr. Broman, that there is no comparison possible to be drawn between the two publications, and that Nexus is not a chief imitation of the Saucerian. In fact, it isn't good enough even to be considered an imitation. I hate to carry a personal fight like this into the pages of your magazine, but I'm not going to sit still down here in these hills and be made a fool of by some cheap... censored by the editor... in Washington. I've also looked over the list of officers in your organization and must say I'm quite disappointed. In commenting on Mr. Broman, I hope that none of your staff nor you, the editor, take personal offense about what I said about that character. And while I'm on the subject of Nexus, I suggest you invest in a good cheap dictionary. Then probably you could spell dimensional correctly. Very truly yours, Gray Barker, editor of the Saucerian, world's largest flying saucer publication. And unsurprisingly, there's more demand for news about Al Bender. Please, oh please, print the true story of Al Bender. Ted Blocker, Kenville, New Jersey. And in one of the most significant moments of the 1950s, and maybe of the entire history of saucerdom, we have Mosley's report on what might be going on at Wright Field, now known as Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. In April of this year, I received from a correspondent of mine a letter which read in part, quote, My opinion is that the Air Force is holding a saucer, or parts thereof, at Wright-Patterson Field. I base this opinion on a great number of collective items, and one solid item, a testimony by a woman who was a whack at Wright when, in the fall of 1952, they were on an aircraft attack alert for two weeks. Then she learned that a saucer had been brought to Wright Field, and she saw a picture of it. The Air Force had feared that because of what they found in the saucer, it had transmitted valuable information elsewhere, and they expected a possible attack. I think the saucer was found around Columbus, Ohio, but I'm not sure. End quote. When will the public be told about all this? Only when the government is good and ready. Only after they have mastered the secrets of these captured disks and learned from their operators the purpose of these visits. Then, after a long, drawn-out campaign of preparing the public, perhaps taking years, we will be told. Or then again, perhaps the public will know sooner, provided that someone with sufficient guts, luck, and determination can break through this wall of secrecy and prove to the American public the facts that we, as free citizens of a democratic country, have every right to know. It is my intention to continue investigating this and other similar cases concerning captured saucers and little men. If I receive any further information of value along these lines, I fully intend to pass it on to readers of Nexus just as soon as it is possible. On the other hand, should this, for any reason, be the last issue of Nexus, I think most of our readers will be able to sur surmise that the question, who's lying, has been answered. Alien bodies, debris, other ephemera taken from crash sites to Wright-Patterson, specifically, one day, we will say, Hangar 18 at Wright-Patterson. This would become a staple of UFO conspiracy theories in coming decades. 
It's not often we can pinpoint the beginnings of these tales with such certainty. In his autobiography, Mosley discussed the case, which ended up being, in his opinion, a blend of hoax, exaggeration, and the usual ufological dead end. September. In the September issue of the APRO Bulletin, Coral Lorenzen has a much more paranoid take on the firing of Frank Edwards. Frank Edwards hushed? Although there is no direct information or evidence or confirmation, the recent absence of Frank Edwards from his nightly post as newscaster on Mutual Broadcasting System is taken by many as just another victory for the hush-my-mouth-there-ain't-no-saucers boys at the Pentagon. We have known Edwards to have been an avid saucer fan for years before many of us knew what the term flying saucer meant. Because Mr. Edwards has had a record of fastidiously fair reporting, and because we happen to know that the American Federation of Labor, his sponsor, was very well satisfied with his news reporting in the Capitol and throughout the nation, we are sure that the reason for Mr. Edwards' break with that union was because he refused to be censored regarding news of flying discs. Time will bear out whether or not this theory is correct. In the interest of fairness, we should mention that Edwards' friend Rory Stewart wrote in his book, The Strange World of Frank Edwards, that Edwards' dismissal was ordered by AFL, George, AFL head rather George Meany, who sponsored the program. Because Edwards insisted on discussing other labor organizations, which Meany had explicitly ordered him not to do, Edwards had to go. Along with being worked up about Edwards, Lorenzen goes on a bit of a rant. We do not attempt to shape the thoughts and attitudes of our members, but recently have attempted to bring to their attention a gradual failing of the morals of the bulk of the world's population, and in particular that of the United States. Honesty is no longer a common virtue, but more or less of a freak of nature. When we speak of failing morals, we do not refer to the commonly overworked sins of the flesh theme, but rather to the sins and hypocrisies of the mind and soul which have taken hold of mankind. We have become constantly aware of the revisions of the good old laws which are the core of all religions by theologists and politicians alike solely for expediency in modern living, along with new progress in the machine and chronal age has come now progress in the art of hypocrisy, inhumane treatment of men and animals alike. It's regrettable, but research into what, why, and the how of flying saucers has also brought a new insight into the decomposition of the moral obligations of the human race. True, there are still a few ethical people, but unfortunately they comprise a sad minority. It is this ramping hypocrisy and utter disregard of truth which will have to be battled before the truth of the flying saucers will ever come out. The Air Force, through its imbecilic bungling in the early years of the saucer mystery, its face-saving contradictions, and actually idiotic explaining away of saucer sightings, will resort to almost anything now in order to prevent the truth from coming out. For if it does, they, that certain silent group, will have to answer, and logically, for the lying and skullduggery perpetrated by them in their idiocy and narrow-mindedness. When their own egos prevented them from seeing the writing on the wall, they throw a smokescreen of phenomena and balloons and such to the public, who, because they traditionally looked to the experts for their answers, came, saw, and believed the whole stupid mess. Some have come to believe that the director and most of the members of APRO are anti-Air Force and border on subversive inactivities. This is absolutely untrue. 
How will the Air Force hush-hush fellas manage to keep all of this undercover when numerous sightings of saucers and odd-looking but intelligent creatures indicate that something is very much amiss? The Air Force, as in the past, will holler hallucinations, hysteria, etc., until the thing reaches such proportions that there is hysteria, and then there will be no going back for them. They'll have to tell the truth, and the truth will hit an uninformed and unprepared world population like an H-bomb. If the Air Force thinks that what they know will cause hysteria, they might try to imagine the real hysteria which will be imminent if they don't start talking sense very soon. Saucerian returned in September as well. It still didn't have any answer to the Bender mystery, but there was a really interesting report from Dominic Lucchese on supposed encounters with a saucer woman. I don't know quite how to put it. I know you're going to think I'm nuts or something. Well, anyway, I saw her, or or it, and the thing, gleaming sort of brassy-like. And she, it, well, something was standing on the side or, or deck of this thing. It was a girl, I'm sure, and so was my wife. For a few moments, uh, my mind must have gone blank, numb or something, since I did not feel frightened as I tried to study the thing or the, the girl. I was trying to get a look inside the thing since the port or door was open, but it seemed hazy or misty inside. All I could see through the port were a few glass-like rods which, with bluish balls or, or spheres on the ends. It looked like high-frequency stuff, you, you know, that sort of thing. I saw some black piping, too. The outside of the ship, the top part anyway, was brassy-colored and appeared dimpled or, or hammered-like, and that... That bottom had that funny gleam like stainless steel, dull and shiny at the same time. Pipes came out of the bottom of the thing, if you can understand that, and went down to the edge of the thing. I suppose, like all technicians, I was interested more in the mechanism than in the creature. This girl thing had a black rubberoid hood that extended halfway down her back, and and it seemed to be inflated since I could see it pulse or change size. She was holding a tube which went back into the port in one hand and a a black box with a wire attached in the other. She had a plastic-like mask over her face and wore goggle-like things. Then I noticed those eyes. It might have been my imagination, but they seemed luminous as they showed through the dark goggles. It was then that the realization hit me that here was something not to be idly looked at, and I began shaking like a leaf. My wife was gripping my hand so hard it hurt and seemed frozen to the spot. I pulled at her, but she was stiff as a board and wouldn't move until I yanked her and shook her. I half-dragged her into the car, gunned the motor, and got out of there. After driving about three miles, I stopped to see how my wife was. She was white as a sheet. Her mouth was moving, but she couldn't talk. That's about all of it. Knowing it sounds funny, I suppose you think I'm really gone, but I told you only because you seem to believe in some pretty crazy stuff yourself. Besides, you might have an idea of what it was and and where it came from. The Wild Rumors column had an interesting take on the saucer mystery. Wild rumor that a small group of about 50 scientists and their families grew tired of civilized living around the time of the First World War and moved to a remote part of the world. There, unhampered by wars, etc., they have developed a civilization better than ours. Among the devices they've invented are the you-know-whats. This bears a lot of similarity to later stories, actually modern-day stories, of so-called breakaway civilizations. 
secret enclaves of people with superior technology and the like. It's also a great example of the diversity of saucer thought and theories and speculation at the time. We finish our last Saucerian for 1954 with Gray Barker's review of Truman Bethram's Aboard a Flying Saucer. We may be quite foolish in applying scientific reasoning to saucer experiences. It may be that the saucers represent a science or a type of physics completely above our threshold of experience or ability to theorize, and that Bethram has reported the thing as he and Earthman saw it. Even if we don't believe it, we'd be stupid and intolerant to dismiss the story without allowing the possibility that it was true. Ourselves, we believe every word of it. It's as real as the gods and demons that beset us on a dark and lonely road, as the golden phaeton seen between waking and dreaming on a lazy day, unfolding jeweled wings across purple skies. There are those who would put demons in bottles for display, actually demand proof of the gold where rainbows touch, or throw radar at dream castles in the air. They are the kind that looks for pixies only in congressional committees. But those who have bridled the winged horse never worry of oats. They are those close to that wonderful and mysterious land we came from, that world half-remembered in childhood and oft-visited in dreams. Some say it's over the rainbow. Some may say that's what heaven is. Some may call it clarion. It's one of the finest pieces of softer writing ever. And in the future, if anyone asks me what I think of contactees, or indeed of any other saucer story, I'm just going to refer them to this and say pretty much that. Just read that, listen to that, and that's what I would say if I had one-tenth of Gray Barker's talent. October. The October issue of Nexus had some great stuff, including one of the earliest mentions of a meeting between space beings and President Eisenhower. The rumor persists that several saucers from space landed at Muroc Air Base, California, last spring, and that Eisenhower had a conference with one of the saucer occupants. Ike was told, quote, it is the policy of the other planets not to interfere with the internal affairs of any planet, except when their actions are liable to disturb the members of the solar system. Then we, the space visitors, are permitted to step in and stop it. We are now worried about your dangerous playthings because you do not know what you are doing. And if you start an atomic war, we will stop it quickly. There's also poetry. Ode to a Spaceman by A. Anonymous. Spaceman, spaceman on the wall, who's the fairest of them all? Short Venusians with long dark hair, or Aura Reigns with beauty rare? Why is it that folks from space bring us Earthlings peace and grace just by looking at their face? Why does calm and joy untold come to all those who behold these visitors of higher mold? Is it true that there has grown in worlds adjacent to our own a race whose beauty is unknown? Or is it rather that weed of opium has filled a need and that the favored few of us who meet these visitors so trim and neat are looking out with blurry gaze into a sort of mystic haze? and an impending solution to the flying saucer mystery. The information I've discussed so far is a matter of public record. However, just before this issue of Nexus went to press, I received irrefutable documented evidence which fully confirms these ideas. 
This information is due to a long-awaited leak from a high official source. It is now too late to assemble this startling data for the present issue, but it will be presented in full in the November issue. We're going to turn now to a few snippets from the newsletter of the Detroit Flying Saucer Club. It's called Vimana, which is a Sanskrit word denoting a mythological flying machine, or not mythological, depending on your particular position on ancient aliens' stories. Actually, in all candor, the newsletter's first issue is called Vinama because they spelled it wrong. I mean, just bless their little hearts. They're, they're trying, and I love them for it. And their introduction is so full of enthusiasm, you can't help but like these folks. The Detroit Flying Saucer Club has been formed as a natural outlet for expressing such interest in its multiple aspect, with as little bias, prejudice, and personality as it's possible to maintain. The flying saucer phenomena epitomizes something so much more broader than its inadequate title would imply. This is not an escapist movement, a post-war craze, or an example of fringe fever. Rather, it's a startling evidence of a renewed gearing of consciousness, clearly pointing out that the enveloping spirit of life is presenting us with a solid, physical, new part of itself. They're also working on a petition to President Eisenhower, calling attention to the fact that secrecy in government is not an American ideal and that public awareness is what has made our country great, it is only natural that a petition to the Honorable President of the United States requesting that pertinent UFO information be released at this time is one of the major assignments of the Detroit Flying Saucer Club. Copies of this petition may be obtained by addressing our club offices at 6432 Cass Avenue or by asking for a copy at the forthcoming meeting from our secretary's table in the foyer. We are very grateful to find that the response to this request has brought in 10 to 50 names each day, and that soon we shall be over the thousand mark. To those who have been so conscientious, many, many thanks. To questions that have been raised, we can only state that the motivation behind this request that our president tell his people about the UFOs is as American as Lexington and Concord. Further, we assure everyone who signs his name on the line at the bottom that no exploitation will be given his name, not even for our own mailing list. And in the November issue, the next month, they have a short article about what books to read if you're interested in the Flying Saucer mystery. What shall I read and recommend to others? If you're a beginner and want the plain facts about interstellar flying objects, you can do no better than read Flying Saucers from Outer Space by Major Donald A. Kehoe. The popular 25-cent edition sells out wherever seen, but keep trying. If you've passed on to the second stage and wish historical and contactual verification, no book is finer or more valid than Flying Saucers Have Landed by Desmond Leslie and George Adamski. If your mind is of a philosophic turn and you appreciate the subtle prospects of this subject, then The Saucers Speak by Dr. George Hunt Williamson and Al Bailey relates the fact that flying saucers have been contacted through radio telegraphy. Williamson is an anthropologist by profession. If engineering, flight propulsion, and the mechanical side appeal strongly to you, Dan Fry's book, The White Sands Incident, is right up your private armchair. Excellently written by a man who may be our January speaker. Now, this is just fascinating to me. It's, it's got a great mix of nuts and bolts saucer stuff, your basic contactees, and even some more esoteric spiritualism. And you can absolutely count on the fact that we will be talking about George Hunt Williamson 
in long form in a later installment. There's just no way not to. This guy, this guy had some interesting stories. There's also a little more detail on the petition mentioned in the October issue. One, we believe that these phenomena are of a magnitude and importance such as to warrant the utmost openness and cooperation between government and citizenry. Two, we believe that the present policy of silence and secrecy is a reflection on the intelligence and loyalty of the American citizen. Three, we believe that this policy not only encourages fear and lack of confidence in government, but leads to exploitation by unscrupulous publishers and opportunistic individuals who prey upon the natural curiosity of the American citizen. Four, we do not understand by what right certain public servants utilizing the taxpayers' facilities for information and observation gather facts relative to these phenomena then fail to properly inform the public. Five, other countries have already acknowledged these phenomena and has publicly appointed governmental commissions to investigate, collect information, and report to the people. We ask that our government come forward and make an honest and forthright acknowledgement of these phenomena and inform the citizens of such pertinent facts as are now available. In return, the citizens would then be willing to report sightings and contacts with otherwise would remain concealed because of fear or ridicule or rebuff by government agencies. This cooperation between government and citizenry would clear the atmosphere of fear and suspicion, would renew confidence in our public officials, and pave the way to a better understanding and evaluation of these great phenomena. Also in November, um, Mosley deflated his readers who were awaiting the answer to the saucer mystery. In his autobiography, Mosley explained, quote, Of course, there, were, there was no such evidence. My innately mischievous nature had gotten the best of me, and I'd backed myself into a corner. Naturally, I came clean. Well, not quite. In the October issue of Nexus, in an article entitled The Flying Saucer Mystery, Solved, I stated, quote, Just before this issue went to press, I received irrefutable documented evidence due to a long-awaited leak from a high official source. It is now too late to assemble this startling data for the present issue, but will be presented in full in the November issue, end quote. I now owe my readers an apology. I must state that the documents referred to above are no longer in my possession, and that I am not at liberty to make any further reference to them, nor am I permitted to elaborate as to why the information I promised you cannot be presented in this or any future issue. Suffice it to say that I am simply unable to publish this information as much as I would like to. I would like to caution all flying saucer researchers to be extremely cautious in dealing with certain phases of the saucer mystery. This is called the Bender Stratagem, I believe. Coral Lawrenson and APRO round out the year with another dose of parent. This really happened. Mr. X, carrying UFO information from one UFO investigator to another in another country, was intercepted by a government investigator and quizzed for a good period of time. The information was sent by personal courier because the sender doubted the safety of said info in the mails. This incident, an actual fact, only serves to further corroborate our suspicions that for some time, the personal mail and telephone lines of top investigators of the UFO problem have been under surveillance. When we say top investigators, we specifically designate those bona fide authorities who deal in analysis and correlation of sighting trends. 
not supposed contactors. It is becoming increasingly evident that the hoaxers are not exposed by the proper authorities because they are a convenient smokescreen for the real facts which are both alarming and very well concealed. We would like to make a statement at this time regarding the so-called contactors. When the real truth does come out, they will be the most surprised of anyone, and our little playmates who fraternize with imaginary space travelers will sport some mighty rosy complexions. She's also completely fed up with the Air Force, and she doesn't give a tinker's cuss who knows it. A new development, which amounts to just another asinine statement by the Pentagon branch of the Air Force, deserves only a small mention in this column because it is pure hogwash. That is, the latest official statement blaming the saucers on hallucinations. We would like to suggest to the Air Force at this time that they either ground every civilian or military pilot who has seen and reported UFOs, or come up with a more sensible theory. They should make it pretty soon. They've been trying hard enough and long enough. If the Air Force saucer wing don't do that, the director of this organization challenges them to a public debate pitting her wits and information against the best of their experts on balloons, hallucinations, Venus, inversions, etc., and etc. They don't dare take that dare. Finally, she goes after Mosley's attempt at revealing the secret of the saucer mystery a little bit. Mr. Mosley then comes out and very sadly states in his November issue that he cannot, after all, give out the good news, and, as others have done in the past, cautions other saucer researchers. We can assure our readers of one thing, that if they were Uncle Sam's and someone was getting too close, that person wouldn't even be given a chance to disclose the fact that he suspected the origin. The government of the United States moves in mysterious ways its wonders to perform, and woe unto him who tries to find out anything he shouldn't know about national defense. Lorenzen's position that, in a way, arguing that the Air Force's cover-up is incompetent, while at the same time being very confident in their ability to keep secrets, is, is kind of a fun, not-quite paradox, and is a good reminder that this was and is a very complex dance between civilian saucer enthusiasts and military or government officials who sometimes know more, sometimes know less, and sometimes just know different things than the average saucer researcher. She does agree with Mosley on one important point. Back in a previous issue of Nexus, Mosley had made the, uh, made the following comment on communist infiltration in the saucer community. The Communist Party has planted an agent in every civilian saucer club in the United States. It seems that the communists share the general public's anxiety to solve the flying saucer mystery. And Lorenzen responds to this in a uh, sort of affirming way. Another thing we'd like to mention about Nexus is their rumor that a communist has been planted in every saucer organization. That's a safe rumor anywhere and any time, for, like germs, the communists cannot be entirely put out of the running and keep showing up in the most likely and unlikely of places. December. We'll wrap up with a bit of Jim Mosley's review of Bethram's contact book, Inside a Flying Saucer. It's not as poetic or evocative as Barker's review uh, that we heard a minute ago, but it does strike a pretty good balance on, on things to think about when dealing with contactees. Aboard a Flying Saucer has a ring of sincerity that is lacking in most of the other books of this kind now on the market. 
Not having met or investigated Mr. Bethram, we cannot say whether this is due to the good ghostwriting job or to Bethram himself. The book is not without its flaws, however, the most obvious of which is the fact that it is an astronomical absurdity to say that any planet could be directly behind the moon at all times. We are also amused, though not displeased, to find that space women are so wonderfully attractive, and we can hardly blame Bethram's wife for displaying a little jealousy. All in all, it is a very enjoyable book. Whether it's a product of an overactive imagination or a true account of a factual experience as proclaimed on the cover is a problem which each reader must decide for himself. So what can we learn from a year of these flying saucer zines? It seems to me that at this point, 1954, one could argue that the saucer world was still kind of the Wild West, and the it's either aliens from outer space or it's nothing at all false dichotomy was still not quite really what was going on. Um, it wasn't yet established, which is good. I, I'd like to go back to that, you know, in the 21st century. Over the past two episodes, we've, we've also hopefully gotten a taste of the personalities involved, including some of the burgeoning animosities. I urge you to check out Jim Mosley's autobiography, co-written with Carl Flock, Shockingly Close to the Truth, for a wealth of inside information on this. There's so much that I wasn't able to get to, lest this whole topic stretched to three episodes, and there's also a lot that got left on the cutting room floor. We'll be doing a couple bonus encounters over the next month or so with some of this material, so be on the lookout for an inverted contactee story, you might say, from the pages of Nexus, and the fascinating tale of the day when the FBI decided to investigate the Detroit Flying Saucer Club. Thanks again this week to the Center for UFO Studies, who have a massive archive of UFO publications, sighting reports, and similar items. It's an amazing resource, and you can find them at cufos.org. Next week, it's some saucer prehistory with some tales of the mystery airship wave of 1897. You can follow along with us at saucerlife.com and on Twitter at saucerlife, or you can email us at the saucer life, all one word at gmail.com. We'd love your feedback, so get in touch. Um, if you haven't subscribed yet using uh, your favorite podcast app or listening service, including Stitcher, which we're now a part of, please do so. It's the easiest way to ensure we don't miss any of you getting all of the information about arcane saucer history that you need to get through your daily lives. Uh, sharing and retweeting of links of episodes are all also very much appreciated. The Saucer Life is a Chizo Media production. Until next time, you better keep watching the skies because I have a feeling the skies are not going to stop watching you.